Oftentimes companies, before they release products into the public, will put them through extreme testing to really see the resilience of a product or really the safety features of a product. So for example, a car company might run its car through several crash tests to see do the airbags deploy, do all the safety features work, does the frame hold. And so they purposely run through these crash tests to see will the car hold up, will it do what it's supposed to do in the worst of circumstances. In the same way, there'll be other products like take winter clothing, for example, that will test the jacket, how it does, how much heat it keeps within for the person in extreme temperatures. And so you might not be planning a trip to Mount Everest, but it's kind of cool to know that your jacket could handle it if it's possible, right? And so they'll put jackets in extreme temperatures like negative 40 degrees Celsius or something like that, and to see how does this hold up against extreme conditions. Well, in the same way, I believe as Christians, we have this paradox of the Bible talks about joy, and we read about things like God is love and, and peace and purpose, and we, and we find these meaningful things on Sunday but then Monday hits us in the back of the head. Whap! And we're faced with a very real financial struggle or relationship heartache or a bad habit or, or a sinful pattern that we're, we can't seem to break or physical ailment that just keeps coming at us. And so sometimes as a Christian, it can feel like we're stuck between two worlds that I read scripture and I see so much hope, but then I, I walk into life or, or I turn on the news and I just see so much hopelessness. And, and we find ourselves in this tension and, and what to do with that tension. And so I want to speak into that tension this morning and I want to spend the next few minutes really unpacking this truth. And if you're taking, write this down and it's this, that a joy that is tested is a joy that can be trusted. A joy that is tested is a joy that can be trusted. Just like cars or winter clothing are, are put through extreme tests to see, will it hold up? In the same way, we can have faith and belief in the truth of the Bible and the Word of God because it has been tested in the most extreme circumstances. Let me just give you three quick examples and then we're going to be walking through the word together found in John 16. So if you have your Bibles, open up to John 16. But we know that the joy of the Lord, the joy that comes from knowing Jesus as personal Lord and Savior, is a tested joy and is a trusted joy because it is held up on the most extreme things. Example number one is that just hours later, we are in the series called The Upper Room, and that almost a fourth of the Gospel of John about 20 to 25% of the gospel is focused on the last hours of Jesus with his disciples. And so we're looking at the chapters about how Jesus knows he's about to go to the cross, knows he's about to be arrested, crucified to carry the weight of the sins of the world. And so he's going to share his heart and what started in the upper room, they can continue on a walk through Jerusalem as they're almost to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
But then just hours later, he would be arrested, and the next day, he would be crucified. And so here is Jesus, knowing this was coming, and yet he speaks of a great joy, a joy that cannot be taken away. And so the most extreme circumstance, the most extreme situation, the fact that Jesus carried the weight of the world on his shoulders and was nailed to the cross and it held, should tell us something. Next, we see that this joy sustained the very disciples. You're going to see in here in just a few moments that Jesus promises destruction and and difficulties. And in fact, every disciple, Judas betrays Jesus, but then but then every disciple that goes on and proclaims the resurrection of Jesus and and the gospel as we know it today, ultimately gets killed for their faith. Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel right to be killed in the same way. But Savior, others had limbs torn apart. One was was, uh, pierced through the heart and then drugged through the streets. Like This is intense, intense stuff. In fact, the writer, it says in church tradition and history, points out that John, the the writer of this gospel, was put at one point in a pot of boiling oil that they thought was going to kill him, but instead of killing him, he stood up in the pot and started preaching. (laughs) And so the ruler got scared that he couldn't actually kill John, so he actually sentenced him or isolated him on the island of Patmos, and it was from that island isolated that he would then write the letter of Revelation that we have today. And so he was one of the last disciples alive. He saw the other friends of his and brothers in Christ killed in gruesome ways. The church was scattered and persecuted, and yet he's going to write the words that we're looking at today. And why do I share that? Well, if you are going to make up a story, like let's just say, for, for instance, that the disciples are making up this story, are making up a religion because they didn't have power and they wanted power. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty pain-averse. Like, if I can avoid pain, I'm choosing that option right away. And so here are the disciples, that if it was in fact a myth, if it was in fact a lie, as soon as they get persecuted, as soon as they get thrown in jail, beaten up, or threatened to be killed, if I'm them, and this is made up, and I know that, I'm like, oh, just kidding, guys, just kidding. Didn't mean it. Nope, not true. But they went through the harshest of harsh conditions and yet remained faithful preaching about this joy that we're going to talk about today. And so the joy was strong enough for the cross. The joy was strong enough for the early church. And then third, we see that over the next 2,000 years, repeated stories of suffering and persecution And yet, people remain faithful to what this word says. And so, the word of God has withstood the test of time. And we see that this truly is a joy that cannot be taken away. Because a joy that is tested is ultimately a joy that is trusted. But don't just take my word for it. Let's go ahead and see what Jesus says. In John 16, he says there in verse 1, he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He says that they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. If I hear that, I'm like, whoa, (laughs) you just said you were leaving us. I already felt sad. And now you're saying we're going to, like, can you imagine if, like, you're going to throw, like, a birthday party, you know, and, like, you got the hats, confetti, and the little noisemakers, like, I don't know who made those, but 
kudos to them. But like, you're like, Jesus comes in the room, you know, he entered Jerusalem on a donkey, people shouting, Hosanna, you're in this last supper room, you're going for a walk with Jesus, like, yeah, this is great, this is the best party ever, and it's like, you're going to die, like, party over, right? And so he says, no, they're going to kill you, and they're going to think they're doing what is right. It continues on, and it says, verse 3, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember them that I told you. Think about this. John, who was in there with Jesus all these years later, pens this gospel after seeing his friends killed for this gospel and is thinking back on the time that Jesus said, you're going to remember this. And we know he remembers it. How? Because he wrote down. And so he writes these words, and then verse 5, he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He can read the room, <laughs> right? In verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so despite all the sorrow, despite everything that's about to happen, it's, it's, it's for your good. And then in week two of our series, we talked about the meaning and power of the Holy Spirit. And so I encourage you to go back and watch that because over these next couple of verses, it, it talked about the Spirit. So I'm not going to rehash that for right now, but go back and watch or listen to week two. And so he talks about the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit's going to do, and he's working in their lives. And then, and then we get to verse 16. And he says this, a little while you will see me no longer, and again in a little while you will see me. And the disciples are like, well, are we playing hide and seek? Like, what is this? You will see me, then you won't, but then you will. And like, have you ever been in a class where the teacher said something, and you, ha and you were just zoned out? And then they come back, and they're like, no, that makes sense, right? You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I totally understand that theory. In principle, of course, of course, right? And then what do you do? You lean over to your neighbor. What, did, what was that? What did they just say? Right? This is what the disciples do. I love that the disciples are just as ignorant as you and I today. And so they are with Jesus. Jesus has said, You're, you see me now, you won't see me, but then you will see me. And the disciples are like, oh, yeah, totally, right with you, Jesus. We are right with you. What was that? Peter, did you get that? <laughs> and they're like leaning. They don't, because watch this, verse, verse 16 here, or verse 17. And some of the disciples said to one another, they didn't ask Jesus. They, if you have a question, you can ask the teacher, right? But you don't ask the teacher because you don't want to feel embarrassed. So you lean over and you whisper, or you just pretend you understood the whole time. Some of you are just staring at me, but some of you understand because you were that student, because I was that student. And so there, and the disciples say to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me. And then again in a little while you will see me because I'm going to the Father. What? <laughs> what does this mean? Verse 18. So they were saying, what does this mean it, by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Like, what is, what is this guy? Like, what, what do you mean he's going somewhere and we can't see him, but we can't see Like, what is this? And then I love that Jesus saw what was going on. He says, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What, did I, what I meant by saying a little while, you will not see me, and again in a little while, you will see me? 
And here's where we get this turning point, and it's going to change their lives, and it's going to change our lives. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. So he doesn't ignore the sorrow. He doesn't say, oh, everything's going to be fine. You're okay. The pain's not real. He acknowledges the sorrow, but then he says, I'm going to turn that sorrow into joy. And then he gives us this picture in verse 21 that is still applicable today. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because the hour has come. And every woman in here says, amen. Um, But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy of a human being has been born into the world. It amazes me what women are able to do. And, and I had no idea what I was in for. Like that whole book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, doesn't cut it, okay? And I'm like, oh, we're going to have a baby. This is going to be great. And then I'm like, oh, and there's kids in the room, so I'm just leave it at that. But, um, right, like the, the strength of you ladies is amazing because then you can walk around the next day and be like, isn't the baby beautiful? I can tell you one thing, if it were up to, if it were guys, the population would probably cease to exist because we're not walking through pain and we would tell everybody about it, right? Because like if we stub our toe, we're like, oh man, I'm in so much pain. Or if we're sick, we just, we need everybody, it's something in us, we need everybody to know when something happens to us, it's what we do, right? And so the strength you have, and so here's what's interesting about this picture is that Jesus says, he doesn't ignore the sorrow. He says, yes, there is pain there and that is real, but the joy that comes, the joy that comes is so much greater that you almost forget about the sorrow. He says, this is the imagery that I want you to understand, that the joy that you can have is so much bigger and better than any sorrow that you experience. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now. He says, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And if you're taking notes, really underline this or highlight this. It says that no one will take your joy from you. There's going to come a time. He's saying, yes, I'm going away because he's about to be crucified. The disciples don't get it. But then when he rises again from the grave and, he real, and the disciples see that he conquered death itself, that if we have access to a power and a joy that conquers death itself, then what can this world do to us? It is a joy that cannot be taken away. And it's so powerful. We see in here, it says, in, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. And truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. You can see answered prayers. He says, verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive it, that your joy may be full. He is equating himself with God. He is giving us access to God. And he's saying not just a little bit of joy, but a joy that will completely fill or make you complete. He said the same thing in the previous chapter in John 15, 11, That when you abide in him and he abides in you, that your joy may be full. It's not just a little bit of joy, but an overflowing joy that the world cannot take away from you. 
And then in verse 25, he says that I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour has coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day you will ask in my name, and, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Man, that could be a whole other sermon right there. That the Father loves you as you are, as a son or daughter of God, for those who call upon his name. It says, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. It says that I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And the disciples said, oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. He says, now we know that you know all things and you do not need anyone to question you, that this is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? For behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, where you will be scattered, each into his own home, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And then we get to verse 33, which is one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. But now we see the context in which it was written. And Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So he doesn't ignore, he doesn't say you will just live hashtag blessed, meaning nothing will ever bad happen again, that you will never struggle with sin again, that you will never have any issues again. No, he says, you, in fact, you will. I promise you, you will. I promise you the struggle is real. I promise you the sorrow is real. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And so the joy that is tested is a joy that can be trusted because the test comes through what Jesus experienced. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. It's a great picture to go run your race. Why can we run that race? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? Joy <laughs> that was set before him endured the cross despising shame. I love that phrase. You know what that means? Jesus shamed shame. Like shame itself was ashamed of itself compared to the joy and the power and knowledge of Jesus. That when you speak of, uh, to the shame in your life and the guilt in your life and, and what people speak over you, you can understand that it's not about doubting, it's about doubting your doubts. It's about shaming your shame. That we have God whose joy endured the cross for your sake and for mine. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then it's half-brother James, when he was being persecuted, wrote this letter. In the opening of his letter, James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, it says, Count it all, what? Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A joy that is tested is a joy that can be trusted. There was this illustration I saw a couple years ago, and it stuck with me, so I want to share with you now. And it helps illustrate this point. Because you see, we are each called a vessel of God. And when you think of your life, 
It's very easy to define your life based on what happens to you. Maybe this is a situation. Maybe this was a name somebody called you. Maybe this is a betrayal someone did to you. Maybe there was, I don't know, an addiction. Maybe there was a circumstance or health crisis. Maybe there was this guilt that you carry within you. And I don't know what defines you or what story you tell yourself. But every single one of you probably has a series of things. You may have a ping pong ball of worry, of anxiety, of depression. And I don't know what is in your life right now. But what I can tell you is that our lives are filled with what people say about us and how the world has defined us. And so here we are, we come into church, we have all these scars and pains and questions and doubts. And then someone asks us, how are you? We're like, oh, we're fine. But you can't just remove this from your life. right? You can't just take one out. It doesn't work, it doesn't work like that. Because as soon as you take something out, there's just a void and it's going to come back. And so you can't just take something out. You actually need something to replace it. And this is where the Holy Spirit and the power of God comes in. The Spirit of God is described as living water. And when you put your faith in Jesus, that Spirit starts to indwell you. And you understand that you experience things like a church service or you read your Bible or you sing a song and and it's a little bit of something. But just a little bit of something isn't enough to change you. But as the Spirit of God continues to work in your life, slowly but surely, you start to see the troubles in this life start to be pushed out and removed. Strongholds are broken. Things are set free. Your identity changes. And soon you are not defined by by what somebody said to you, by what somebody did to you. But here's the issue. You're being changed on the inside. You're being slowly transformed but, for, but those from a distance, those watching online, what do you primarily see? You still see the orange balls right there. You still see those things that used to define you. Some of you, your lives have changed. But old friendships, old people, old situations look at you and they see what you used to be. But if you allow the Spirit of God, the joy of God to continue to work in your life It starts to break free. It starts to change things. It impacts your attitude and your spirit. And pretty soon you see what is left and everything is removed and you are made whole and you are made clean. Amen. This doesn't come from just effort. This comes from the spirit of God and the joy of the Lord changing you. And here's the best part. When you get saved, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the trouble is you still have sorrow. You still have sin. You still have issues. But the difference in the life of the believer is that it's on the surface. That Satan can't touch you. 
That yes, he might try to define you by a situation or a circumstance or your past. He might try to define you by this thing or that thing. But the Spirit of God continues to move because he cannot change what is inside. Because Jesus did not come to make bad things good. He came to make dead things alive. And every time Satan tries to remind you of your past, you can remind Satan of his future. Because you are a loved son and daughter of God. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you have access to this living water that changes everything. It doesn't, trust me, it does not minimize the situation or the circumstance. It doesn't minimize the pain that is very real. But it meets you in your pain, in your grief, in your valley, in your lowest moment. And it changes everything because through the power of God, through Jesus Christ alone, you can experience a joy that no one and nothing can take away from you. This is why you can walk through cancer and walk through broken relationships and walk through financial loss. And the world can look at you and be like, how are you holding this together? And you can respond, I'm not. But Jesus is. You know, we're praying for a miracle that God takes this illness away. But even, even if he doesn't do it right now, I do know one day he will. One day there will be no more mourning. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more lies. There'll be no more depression and bitterness. And that starts with trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If I can challenge you today, it's first is to receive a joy that no one can take away from you. And that joy is found in Jesus. Because nothing in your life is going to take away those things from you. You can't get that promotion and take away your past. You can't just get a new relationship and take away your struggles. But Jesus says, abide in me. If you abide in my word, I will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. This tells me there's hope for every relationship. This tells me there's hope for every situation. This tells me there's hope for every physical condition. And it's in that hope, that eternal power, that we have joy. And if you're walking through a situation right now, I want to, <laughs> I feel for you. Understand this, that Jesus does not minimize the sorrow and pain and grief that you're in. That is very real. In fact, earlier in the gospel in John 11, people are weeping. Jesus' first response was to weep with them. But I want you to know you have access to it been tested tested to the point of the cross, tested to the point of the early church and persecution, tested in the Old Testament like Job and those who struggled and had everything stripped away, tested with people who failed like David, but yet is called someone, a man after God's own heart, tested in the entire restart of the nation of Israel through the person and the family of Noah, tested through Peter who repeatedly failed. He's walking on water, he falls. 
He's saying, I will never deny you, Jesus. The next, in the next couple hours later, he's denying him three times. We have a God of second chances. We have a God of restoration. We have a God of reconciliation. And he is not done with you. He is not done. That he is still moving. He is still working. And he is in you. And you have access to a joy in this water and this power that can change everything. That God does not give as the world gives. And the world might see these things, but the difficulties around you does not change the power that is within you. And if you lean into that and you trust into Jesus and you start seeking community around people who believe in the power of Jesus and people can pray for you and work with you. I'm not saying it's easy, but what I'm saying is it's possible. But it's only possible in the name of Jesus and the power of his spirit. Thankfully, a joy that is tested is a joy that can be trusted. Let's pray to Jesus right now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. God, I pray for those who are struggling. I pray for those who are hurting. God, the disciples were experiencing intense sorrow yet in their sorrow in that low point Jesus said I'm going to give you a joy that no one can take away I pray that people can believe and trust you as Lord and Savior I pray that people can give whatever the situation or identity has been to you may you fill us with your spirit and with your love and with your joy because you don't give as the world gives. And so I ask that we can experience that joy. You are the king, you reign above everything in this and that you came down so that we could know you. So help us know you and rest in you today. Our worries and our situations and our sorrow and our stress to you. It's very real, but God, so are you. So we choose work over our worry and we choose joy over our circumstances we love you God and we give our lives to you in your sense and we pray amen you stay